Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Mark, and uh, welcome to E3 as we continue in our journey uh, looking at the biblical mandate for the Christian church to be a place where uh, we are equipped, encouraged, and edify one another. And one of the central themes uh, throughout this series has been the, the centrality of Christ and, and really kind of this, this question of how does, how does a follower of Christ become holy? Can we uh, achieve uh, self-realized holiness or are we totally reliant on uh, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? And, you know, I think a lot of times we uh, look at Scripture and we're kind of overwhelmed by some of the theological terms. And this morning, we're going to spend a little bit of time kind of just unpacking some of this idea of holiness. And then we're going to kind of turn the corner into something a little bit more practical. Um, like what does in a community uh, that encourages one another really look like? And what are the kind of the things, the practical things that that community does. You know, most Christians uh, would agree that when Moses wrote in Exodus chapter 34 in, in verse 14, that, that we should uh, or we uh, must worship no other gods for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. And I think that just about anybody here who who would claim that they're a Christian or, or claim that they're a follower of Christ would, would say, yeah, absolutely. You know, that we're not allowed or we should not have any other God in front of us, not, not Muhammad, not Buddha, you know, not Baal, you know, an ancient God like that, that, that not one, you know, there should be no other God in front of our one true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think most of us would even take the next step, especially those who would say that we're Bible-believing uh, Christians, to say, you know what, an idol can, can not only be a small g God, but, but it can be other things, right? It can be your work, uh, it can be sports, it can even be entertainment. And for a follower of Christ, you know, or a Christian or a person, that those things are really the 21st century idols that can come into our life. But I think that very few of us have, have run the, the, the bondage chain far enough in religion to see that also a false god can be religion or a way to uh, manifest or somehow get ourselves to God. That the, the Pharisees made this, this mistake, and Jesus called them out on it uh, in Matthew chapter 15, when he said to the religious rulers of the day who, who, have, who made holiness their idol, said, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Kind of this idea that externally they look very holy. Externally they do the right things. They say the right things. But this is all self-realized holiness. Check out this next part. Their worship is a farce, for they teach 
man-made ideas, a.k.a. religion, as commands from God. Now, I really believe it's understandable how the idol of holiness, and I'm defining the idol, an idol is anything that removes Jesus Christ from his rightful throne in a believer's life. The idol of holiness of this kind of this self-realized or, or as Jesus said, man-made rules on how to become holy and removing the, the relational aspect of being with God, as, as Moses wrote in Exodus, that anything that gets in the way of our relationship with God, even religion, is a false idol. And I understand how this has gotten confusing because, you know, in the Old Testament in the Hebrew and the New Testament in the Greek, that there uh, are many words uh, that, that are translated to the word holy. But really, if you read it, and it's, it's very difficult for somebody reading an English translation to really get the gist of, of what's going on. It's kind of like we've all heard about like the different loves in Greek. You know, there's amore and, and philo and all, all that kind of stuff. Well, the same thing is true and probably even more true about the word holy. In, in Hebrew, uh, when you... you uh, read verses like, God is holy, a declaration about God. That is kadosh. And, uh, and that designation means absolutely pure. Absolutely pure. So when you read things like, God is holy, that is that, that's that kadosh word. That, is, that means that it is without blemish, it is without fault, that it is, it is uh, perfect in every aspect and from, from every kind of angle that y- you look. Now, the problem is, is that that word holy gets translated in different ways too. There's this, uh, another way in Hebrew that a word, uh, the word kodesh is, is translated, and this is really set aside for God's purpose. And we see how this, this word holy is used in Exodus chapter 26 and verse 34, where, where uh, we're told or they're told to put the ark's cover, the place of atonement, on top of the ark of the covenant, inside the most holy place. Now, that most holy, that word holy there is kodesh. Now, obviously, they're not saying that, that this is an absolutely pure thing. They're not saying that, that this holy place is actually God right? But this, this is something that is set aside for God's purpose. We use this word in our translated uh, English, you know, when we say things like uh, the, God's holy church. Well, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you realize that people belong to the church. And people are not God. They, they are not uh, kadosh. They are not absolutely pure. In fact, that's the whole point of, of our faith is that, you know what, we need a Savior. We need, you know, a God to forgive us and to make us pure and to set us aside. That we have holy places, but those places are not absolutely pure. This is a holy place here. But I'm not making a statement that this place is God. I'm making a statement that this place is set aside for God's purpose. 
purposes and not man's. That E3 Kids across the way is a holy place set aside for God's purpose and not man's. That, that, you know, the, uh, that we have these kind of distinctions just to bugger everything up when you get into the New Testament we have some Greek translation of uh, going into the word holy that, that has different um, kind of uh, 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 meanings in that way. Uh, the first one, the first holy that we have is hagiosmos. And, and this really means refinement almost in this, in this process, kind of the refining fire, you know, this idea of of, you know, a potter's clay or, or metal being uh, smited or smolted or whatever they do in it. You know, I'm not a blacksmith, but, you know, just kind of uh, boiling out all of the impurities. And this word, hagiosmos, is found in 1 Peter in chapter uh, 1 in verse 2. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago. And his spirit has made you holy. Almost kind of this connection. If I was a, if I was a blacksmith and I, I chose kind of this, this metal, you know, and I, and I started heating it up and I would boil out all the impurities. I would keep on scooping off the, the impurities. I, I picked that metal knowing full well that it was not perfect. It was not holy in that, in that sense that it had you know, things that, impurities in it. But through the refinement of the heat, uh, in, the, in, the, in the, the sense of this metaphor, the, the Holy Spirit, and the continued skimming of those impurities off, that there's this process of being sanctified. And that, that's the idea of hagiosmos. Uh, and then the last one that I just want to touch base with is hagiadzo. And and this is really being set aside again, um, that, that, you know, being set aside from the profane, just kind of the, the separation. And these distinctions are absolutely essential in our understanding of how followers of Christ are sanctified. Because if with just a light reading and without kind of using our minds and, 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 and our research that, that you could come to the point of saying, well, yeah, I can realize holiness on my, by myself. That I can have a, a Christian faith that's void of Jesus. And by coming to that conclusion, obviously you would be very, very wrong. And it is the centrality of Christ. It is it, it, that, that our faith, and this is our whole understanding, that we are totally reliant on the sacrifice of Christ for our holiness. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 in verse 12 said it this way, Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy, and this is hagiosmos, the sanctifying process, by means of his own blood. That there was this payment paid for us. And it makes 1 Corinthians chapter, 20, or chapter 1, verse 29, all the more clear when, when Paul makes the following statement. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. 
Kind of this idea that when, you know, you assume room temperature someday and you are standing at those, you know, mythical pearly gates that they're, you know, there's, they're not going to fling open and God's going to say, thank God or thank me I'm here <laughs> or thank me you're here because, you know, uh, you know, you really spruce up the place or whatever, that you're going you're gonna, to you know, somehow make, make my presence or my glory or my majesty all the better. I mean, this is what Paul's saying. He's like, none of us should think that. In fact, if we think that, that's called sin. So as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And then he moves into kind of church language. God has united you with Christ Jesus. And it's through Christ Jesus. Remember, it is our unity with Christ Jesus that makes us holy. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. Who made us pure and holy? Jesus. And he freed us from sin. Sin being anything less than God's perfect vision for our lives. And you know what? Yeah, that can be self-destructive behavior through, through substance abuse or through adultery and stuff like that, but it also can be religion. Religion in the, by the definition of you trying to make a way to have self-realized holiness. That is less than what God has envisioned for you. To free you for sin, from sin. Verse 31, Therefore, as Scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. And it's at this point that we are totally, this understanding that we are totally reliant on the person and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That we have this understanding and probably, you know, just kind of a better understanding of why so many people or so few people find this path. And I think it, it really illuminates what, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 13, where, where he quoted the lead singer of ACDC, the highway to hell. No, he, he didn't quote the lead singer of ACDC. But Jesus quoted himself saying, the highway to hell is broad and the gate is wide for, many, for the many who choose that way. But listen to this next part. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Now, I was going to draw you a beautiful picture today, but I couldn't find my easel. Like, got lost in the move somewhere. So, I'm going to try to paint a picture in your mind, okay? Now, think about, you know, sin, anything being uh, not holy, not absolutely pure, or, or less than God's uh, perfect vision for our lives. Anything. Okay. Now, picture that 
as this like gigantic, you know, just kind of wall with just brick upon brick upon brick, you know. Uh, and in the in the you know center of this wall is this is this small little gate. Now all of these bricks are made up of of different things, all things that are are less than what God wants for us. They're less than his perfect standard. Yeah, that could be substance abuse. Yeah, that can be, you know, uh, being greedy. But that also can be kind of self-realized holiness. And, and kind of this idea that, you know what, when we're going on this very difficult road that men, not many people want to follow or can follow that goes to this gate along this wide kind of highway that leads into this barrier that goes nowhere. And on one side, you, you have, you know, kind of religious practices where a lot of people, you know, say, okay, I'm going to become religious, and I'm somehow going to work my way to God. And then on the other side of the gate is kind of this hedonism where, where it's like, well, it doesn't matter what I do. And it's this kind of this cheap grace or, or I don't even need grace because, you know, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough. And, and you know, by golly, Jesus is going to be happy when I get there kind of idea. And just as a, as a, just a small kind of entryway, is Jesus saying, no. If you veer you know, left and go to the religion route, or if you go right and go to, to the, the kind of the, the self-fulfillment, self-actualization route, that you're going to run smack into the barrier, into sin between you and what is perfectly holy. And it is through Jesus Christ alone that, that we are able to reconnect with our Father in heaven. You know, for, for many people, that this sounds like complete foolishness. For many religious scholars, for, you know, even for, for many theologians, for, for uh, many philosophers, and even many pastors, very, very religious people, that this sounds like, this sounds ridiculous. This sounds like, well, how, you know, what do you mean we can't, you know, have self-realized holiness? Or what do you mean I can't just go and pursue self-actualization and eventually get to the place that God has envisioned uh, for us and that is an unfettered relationship with Him? Well, that's nothing new. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians in uh, chapter 1, right at the beginning. And he said this about the gospel. He called it foolishness. He says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. If you're on the highway to hell, if you are on this, this, this big highway and, and you're just, you know, in hell being just, you know, separation from God is really the, 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 the spiritual definition of hell is just separation from our Creator. And this idea that, you know what, many of us are choosing that route. Many of us are choosing it because of religion, and some of us are choosing it because of self-actualization. But he says, look, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are on the fast track of set to separation from God. 
But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. Listen to this next verse. So where does this leave philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God, is his, God in His wisdom saw to it that the world would never know Him through human wisdom. May I say that again? Since God in His wisdom saw to it that the world would never know Him through human wisdom, He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. And it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called to God by salva- to salvation, both Jew and Gentile, everybody's invited. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. And I believe that this is why encouragement is such a central theme throughout Scripture. Because without encouragement, who among us can continue? And I believe that this is why one of the central tenets of the, of the church is not only to be a place that equips one another to live blessed lives in this cursed world and to build up one another, to edify one another, to be ambassadors of Christ, but also to encourage one another to stay true to our first love and not veer over into self-realized holiness or into a pit of self-destructive behavior. And I think it, you know, it is unlikely for us to just in this world, in this day and time, to just kind of fall into a community of encouragement. In fact, I think it is something that's developed. I think it is is a place that, uh, or a thing that you could even call a spiritual discipline. And I kind of think that because I, uh, Paul writes and asks some questions in, uh, in Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 1. And I think that uh, in the first century, these questions were some no-brainers. In fact, you lawyers out there, you know, what's the, you know, one of the first rules of lawyering, right? It's never ask a question you don't know the answer to, Right? I never gone to law, law school, but I, that's what I—that's what the TV show say, right? So, so this idea that you know, never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. In fact, that's a, you know, that that's just kind of from a from a rhetoric standpoint that that's where you need to be. So, Paul asks several questions in Philippians here, and and I think that in the first century that he expected this to be a resounding yes. But in the 21st century, 
For those of us who are followers of Christ in the 21st century, I'm not so sure that we can give a resounding yes as answers to these questions. Let me read you these questions. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any encouragement to belonging to Christ? These are meant to be questions that without hesitation, I'm sure that Paul would have said, you know, was expecting a resounding yes. How about this next one? Any comfort from His love? How about this? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are you experiencing godly fellowship, transcendent fellowship? Or how about this last one? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? In a lot of ways, and I think most of us have seen it, sometimes the church is one of the most ruthless bodies in all of the world. And I look back at, at, at these questions and I desperately want at least our small church, when we hear questions like, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ that the first thing that pops in our mind, not because we've been trained, but because it is true, is yes, of course. In fact, that's a ridiculous question. Why would you even ask it? You know, is there any question or is there any comfort from Jesus' love? Well, of course there is. I've experienced it. Now, there's, it's not because Mark told you that there's comfort in Christ's love, but you have actually sat at the very feet of Jesus. And He has put your head in His lap and He has stroked your head and given you comfort. Is there any fellowship together in the Spirit? Of course, being at a place where we honestly and truthfully can say, yes, you know what? I am bonded together in my church community in the local expression of Christ's body. And He is the glue that holds us all together. And then are our hearts tender and compassionate? That our hearts literally break for the things that break God's heart. And I think that this is why we need encouragement to continually move toward that way. And here's where I'm going to get real practical because I think that there's just really some practical things that we can do to have that kind of community. Some real practical things that we can do to be, uh, not, to be part of, a, of an encouraging community and also contribute to an encouraging community. And I think the first one is that we need to pray for the gift of encouragement. I know that, that some people are like, what do you mean pray for a spiritual gift? You know, I, the Bible is clear that, that you can pray for, for anything, but, you, but specifically you can pray for spiritual gifts. And that's something that we should, be, we should pray for, especially the, the gift of encouragement. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 8, uh, Paul wrote, If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. I would, I would add, and I know you're not meant to add to the Bible, but so I'm not really adding the Bible. It's commentary. It's a loophole. 
if you don't have the gift of encouragement, pray for it. You know, if, if it is giving, give generously or pray for it. You know, if God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. You know, this idea of praying for gifts. My wife uh, used to pray, uh, uh, you know, each night for me that I, that I would get the, I would have the gift of speaking uh, God's word. Uh, in the in the early days of Mark being a pastor, um, you know, I, I, there were several kind of uh, hurdles to overcome. You know, I, I have dyslexia. Uh, I say uh, a lot, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, things like that. I used to say and sh- and such or you know all the time. I think I've eradicated that. But there was, you know, many. You know, I'm not a gifted speaker. I mean, that's just not like I didn't pop out and 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 start proclaiming the word of God in in a way that people, you know, was coherent to most people. And, and I remember my, you know, Shannon, you know, my wife would sit there and she just, you know, because God had put me in a place where I would speak in front of other people. And she's just like, please, God, after sitting after, you know, sermon after terrible sermon, you know, please, God, give him the gift of speaking for all our sake, you know, you know, kind of, kind of this idea. And, you know, thankfully she doesn't, pray that anymore. I don't know if she's given up or, or if, uh, if that's, uh, that I'm, I've become, you know, at least, you know, coherent or, or something like that. But the idea that, you know, encouragement is definitely a thing that we should, could be and should be praying for. The next thing is creating a space for encouragement. I think that our lives are so full that we don't have room for anything like encouragement. And I think like a lot, lot of us, myself included, we're so stressed out about getting to the next thing that we, we miss opportunities to give the gift of encouragement. That we miss the opportunity to be encouraged. And I really believe that that. We need to create margins in the, 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 the manuscript of our lives to make room for unexpected things, unexpected encouragement to be written in, things that we didn't expect. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 25, said it this way, And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Kind of this idea of creating room in your life to be with other followers of Christ who are going to speak words of life into you, but also you are going to speak words of life into them, words of encouragement. The next one is practice. You know, I think... Most of us don't think about practicing encouragement, but it's definitely a learned skill, just like anything else. Uh, right now, uh, I'm, I'm a coach for a junior cycling team, and, and we practice cornering, and we practice you know, uh, pace lines, and we practice all sorts of stuff. And each week, the kids get better and better and better. 
And encouragement is something that, especially if, it, if it's not a natural gift to you, that, that you need to practice to actually, you know, say, you know what, I am going to do this and I am going to make sure that I, that I do it. Early, early on when I, uh, in, a, in a church called B2X in California where I just kind of learned how to be a pastor, there, there was a guy in the, in the church who I think at one point he decided that he was going to become an encourager and he was going to practice it. And I didn't really realize it. I just thought it was his, his natural kind of gift, you know, but at the start, he wasn't very, very good at it. And what he decided to do, I found out later, was uh, every time after I, I spoke, after, after the church gathering, he'd come up and tell me one encouraging thing that, that happened during, during the talk, something that encouraged him, something that was good, something, something like that. And week after week, it, it would happen. And, and, and you know, it would start, you know, started out kind of, you know, just kind of vague and things like that. But he got very, very good at it and finding things to encourage me in until one week. Uh, it was a particularly bad week and pastors have bad weeks as well. All right. You don't have to be nodding your head about that. I, uh, it's Mikey. Oh yeah, I sit through them all the time. So, but I, but after church, he comes up to me, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to get my my weekly dose of encouragement. And uh, Jeremy walks walks up to me and like stares at me in a second, and then he says, you know, I really liked it when you told that joke, and no one laughed. That you just kept on going and you finished your message. I was like, really? That, that's the best you can do? But, but this idea that, you know what? We practice and we, and we become better and, and we start to learn people's love languages uh, and, and encouragement languages. And we, this is something that we get better at. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verse 11, Paul wrote this. He says, look. So encourage each other and build each other up, which is another word for our way to say edify. Encourage one another and edify one another. Build each other up, just as you are already doing. You know, no one will get mad if you try to encourage them in a bumbling way. But you know what? Somebody may lose hope if you don't. The final thing is encourage encouragement. And I know that's kind of circular, but that's the very point. This is really the you reap what you sow kind of principle. If you, if you sow negativity or silence, you are going to reap negativity or silence. If you sow encouragement, chances are, you know, much better that you are going to receive encouragement. I think it's very interesting from a pastoral standpoint what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, when we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith. That's something that, that you would expect a pastor to say, right? 
But he didn't stop there, comma, he continued on, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. It's kind of this idea that I know that most people come to church to be encouraged, but you know what? It is your job also to encourage others. That it is this idea that, you know what, when I, you come here or you go anywhere, they, 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 that the Holy Spirit is indwelling in you and has given you words of life to speak into the people that you are in community with. And maybe you are the only one that has been entrusted with that encouragement for that specific person. And you are going to say, nah, they don't need to hear it. Let me tell you something and you get this. They need to hear it. There is not a line for anyone to receive encouragement. We all need encouragement, not fake flattery but biblical encouragement. You need it. I need it. The world needs it. And we have the most encouraging message ever given. And that is God loves you and He wants to have a relationship with you. So I want us to Take, <laughs> take this seriously. Not only that we are going to be equippers and that we are going to build one another up, edify one another, but we are also going to take encouragement seriously. And you know what? Those of us who aren't encouraging by nature, you know what? I want to challenge you to start praying for that gift. To start praying that God will give you the gift of encouragement. And also, you know what? If you're too busy for encouragement, you know what? It's time to reprioritize your life. You need to create some margins in the manuscript of your life. Unscheduled time and space, and it can be just you know, an extra five minutes coming, even like just for example here, coming an extra five minutes early to have unscheduled conversations or planning to stay an extra five minutes later. Those are margins that the Holy Spirit works in. Practice encouragement. You'll get better. Just practice it. Start small, but just be honest with people. Look for areas that you can encourage people in. And then finally, sow encouragement. Sow it, sow it, sow it. Come here and be encouraged, but don't leave until you've encouraged someone else. Is that fair? That's right. You know what they call that? Biblical community. Healthy biblical community. And that's where we're going. All right? You guys pray with me.
Dear God, just uh, thank you for this uh, time where we get to talk about the elusiveness in this, this broken, messy world of encouragement. And God, I just pray that we are different, that we are not a community of false flattery, but we are a community of biblical encouragement, that we are a community that, that speaks words of life into people, that we are a community that takes seriously that your spirit is, lives in us and that you have given us words of life to speak into other people, other human beings, other sojourners on this journey of faith. God, I just pray that you are just thick in this place. In that we all, when we walk from this place, as Sydney was saying, that our faces are beaming with joy from you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.